Welcome to part one of our podcast, exploring the fundamentals of leadership with Professor Carl Hennigan. Professor Kamal Matani is asking the questions, and today we'll be exploring the importance of communication, emotional intelligence, and being more of a tortoise rather than a hare as a leader. You'll be able to find part two on the Evidence-Based Healthcare podcast series. Well, hello, I'm Carl Matani, and I'm here today to interview Carl Hennigan, who is Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, and we're going to be discussing leadership today. We'll be exploring some of Carl's own experience of developing as a leader and observations and the state of leadership that he's experienced, particularly in healthcare. We'll be interested particularly in what other healthcare leaders can learn from leaders in related and unrelated sectors and some of the common challenges that emerge as you navigate through your own leadership career. So now, uh, I'd like to ask Carl to introduce himself and also just tell us a little bit about your current role, Carl, and how your career started. Yeah, well, thanks, Kamal. Uh, my name's Carl Hennigan, as you've just said. At the moment, I have a number of roles, and the first was in the university as I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine, where I have two roles in effect. One is based around teaching, and the other role is based around research. And then with that, I'm also an urgent care general practitioner working weekends where I see direct clinical care and seeing patients. And that's the sort of roles that exist. And within that, there are different bits of each of the jobs. But I guess I guess I came to Oxford in 1994 as a mature student at the time. Uh, as people said, you may be old, but you're not necessarily mature, Hennigan. But in that, I came as a 26-year-old, having had a career beforehand where I'd left school at 16 with not great O-levels and went and did a career in lots of different aspects and then came as a medical student and qualified in 2000 in Oxford and then did a variety of roles, which led me into academic medicine and there has been in the Department of Primary Care and been director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine since 2010, so it's been a decade now. Fantastic, and and as you went through these different roles, as you describe, you know, in healthcare and then through your medical career, uh, and then now as a graduate of medicine and and now as director, did you see yourself as an emerging leader through those different phases? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't think I did until you get much more into it, because I think what happens is it's you you look back and see the the, the sort of bits of leadership are coming. But I think what you're doing is you're developing your own skill base and your own knowledge and building that expertise and experience as you go. You suddenly then start to get to a point where suddenly you, you're, you're leading a small team or suddenly you're building a new program. And in doing that, you suddenly realize, oh, look at this, what these skills have been building to get to this point now. And I think there is a transition with everybody where at some point, what happens is at the top of the tree, they go, you realize you're it. You're the person who has to make the decisions. You have to create the dynamism, the ideas, and push things forward. And suddenly you're like, oh, I was relying on that professor or that person was in charge, and suddenly it's you. And that's the transition that people find difficult. And one of the keys I think about you is, if you'll get into a leadership position, You've got to try and also bring other people on where you're saying, look, let them get some responsibility. Let them build their, their approach to being in charge empowered so that when they're there, they're ready. Because there is a tendency for people to go, well, look, 
I'm in charge and everybody below me, I'm going to manage so that they do the right thing. And I think this journey of leadership then, when you do look back, you can sort of see it right back even, even into primary school and in areas, you can see areas where you were doing things, where you suddenly go, hmm, I actually was in a position then where actually I was taking uh, some ownership of taking the responsibility. And I think if you look at that, that's the key to me, is at some point you'll get to a point where it goes, hmm, yeah, I'm having to drive the initiative, take forward the ideas, work with a team. And, and I think it's, it's not always apparent at the outset that that's what you're doing. But when you look back, you can see these things were occurring all the time. And then just would you say that you as a leader have always had that sort of drive underpinning you? Well, no, because I think it's how you look at it. It's the strategy of who you are and what you like doing. And I think that's the key for me is I like problems. I love problems and going into areas where you go, this is a big task and there's something we want to do and build. So I like problem solving. Second is I like working with teams. I like the team aspect of we've got a problem. Who's got what bits of the, the job to do? And if we get to the end of this, we can build something that's world-class and we'll be a proud of it. But on the journey, we'll all be like, hey, it was a lot of fun. We had to work hard. We had to be innovative. And third is, you know, is the harder the, the issue is to solve, the more of a problem it is, the more you have to bring your expertise and experience and the more engaged I am with that. And it's, it, it's, that can be on, on, on even on your own level. So even if you're developing your own leadership, and I'll give a good example for people where I've done something where I've had to build my skill base. I realized very early on in the, in the remit of academia that you have to be a good communicator. And I've always been a good talker and a good teacher. But I, if I put my skill base on writing, if I went back about 10 years ago, I put my skill base of writing really quite at the lower end. And I'd say that's one of the products of me leaving school at 16. I didn't have the ability to build that skill in English language and literature and writing. So I set myself a task where I said, I'm gonna to learn to communicate through writing. And that's been a 10 year journey, which I've taken on, continually built my skill level, keep pushing my boundaries of what I want to do, putting your neck out and sticking articles out there when you're not quite ready. And now I feel like I'm getting there. So that's me building my skill base. And that's me leading for myself, if, if you like. And I think that's an important attribute is you look at what you're good at, but what you're not good at and what do you require for the job. And I, I think that's an important aspect because I think there's something about, if you look at sports is a good area, is when you look at sports, you think, well, who's the captain? Who's the leader? He generally is the person who is one of the best players in the team. Not always, because sometimes the best players are not the best communicators or the best leaders. But generally, it's somebody who's going to be on the bench and on the pitch. And I think that's an important aspect. That If you're going to lead, at some point, people are going to look to you and say, well, have you worn the T-shirt? Are you actually at that level? Because you've got to lead by example. And everywhere I've been... I've often thought you've got to develop your skill base, 
you've got to be really up there. You don't have to be better than everybody. It's not a competition, but you have to feel comfortable when we're talking about communication or dissemination or what we're going to do in this project. I understand what we're trying to achieve. And then having a great team around you is part of that fun factor where you go, look, there's lots of different bits to this problem. And if we all work in one together, we'll solve it. And I think that's important within your own ability to say, I'm leading for myself and combining that then and taking that vision with other people who want to come on that journey. So you mentioned communication being a, a massive part of that. Where would you say, Carl, you learned some of your other, other leadership skills from? Yeah, I think their leadership come through uh, the environment you're in and the aspects. And, you know, you start very young. I often remember having to hold my own with my dad in terms of conversations. They could be political, could be about debates, having an opinion, having some thought processes about what do you think about the current strategy in COVID? What do you think about the current position in terms of the left versus the right? What does that mean? Having an ability to have an opinion but then reflect on that and then take that opinion forward and test it out. And in testing it out, you're looking to see, reflect to some point, if we go down this direction, to what extent is this reflected in the wider audience? Is it something that's more likely to be beneficial or harmful? And I think that communication is really interesting because I think there are two aspects to communication. One is having a network of people around you where you can test out your own thoughts and ideas. And you need that because many of my ideas are, are what I consider important to me, but some of them are not practical, not thought through, not sharpened if you like, but they're embryonic. And I'm thinking, oh, this is an idea. Many of the things we've set out to do, I've had to reel back. But that's okay, because when you talk to your small group, that's an important aspect of you testing out the water, if you like. Versus the second argument or communication strategy is once you've got your thought processes right and you know what your vision is, then you've got to direct that to a wider audience, haven't you? And that's when also the skill base is required there. So there are two aspects to it that I think are really important. And I think communication is a really interesting aspect. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's the jobs I take are communication jobs. Mm. Teaching is a communication job. You, you have to communicate with the audience when you're teaching. It's the ultimate communication because at the end of the day, they're going to come out of that session and go, gosh, that was pretty good. Or that was a bit boring. He wasn't really listening, wasn't talking to us and seemed to be, wrote reading of some sort of pre-written agreement and i we've all seen lectures and sessions where we've gone just that was a bit boring i was really looking forward to listening to that person and i thought it was amazing and then i listened to his lecture and it was dull so teaching is an, an important aspect of what we do in communication but also general practice is a communication job you have to go and talk to people you have to talk to them about sharing information and decisions and it's interesting in terms of when you start to think about your communication and you get to some high level, for instance, when you're doing it on TV or on media, you really have to then even sharpen your tools again. So what you're doing is pushing up the level 
of where your comfort zone is and then going oh now the next 30 seconds really matter in terms of what i say mm. so i've got to make a very clear articulate point otherwise people are going to go away and go what the hell did you say and what matters with that is everything are you being yourself are you comfortable are you prepared to go out there and say i have something important to say now often what happens to us in life is there's a fear factor that comes in um i think it was steve peters called called it the inner chimney on your shoulder which sits there and there are many many people who put this is that there's that inner voice that comes up to you and says oh i wouldn't do that right now and i wouldn't say that and i think that's a really important aspect in your confidence and um at that point that is the point when you actually should be saying i'm at the right point i want to be now because actually i'm feeling a bit anxious i'm feeling a bit tense i'm about to say something that is important but if i get it wrong people will judge me now that's what holds most people back is that little bit of fear factor that says you're not going to be perfect it is not going to come out as, as though you want it to 100%. You can't do that live. But but I often think then, when we're children and we're young and we go into these uncertain positions, we embrace them with a sense of joy and energy. And then as we go through life, we seem to get pulled back so that we go, mm, I wouldn't go into that situation. You know what? You might lose your credibility if you now say something a bit odd. And I think that's an incredibly important aspect. The fear factor, the bit on your shoulder is embracing that versus actually listening to it and then saying, I won't go there. And I think that would be a key attribute for people who are good leaders is they understand that, that bit of their conscious that's holding them back, but they know how to embrace it and go, yeah, I'm right where I want to be. And uh, I often have that, that feeling. I can have it sometimes before a teaching session or a big talk. I can go, do you know what? It'd be a lot easier to be in the audience right now. There are a thousand people here listening to every word I'm about to say. I quite like to be in the back. And what I do at that point is I go, right, Carl, you're right where you want to be right now. Let's just relax, go and be yourself. Let's go and be clear, concise, but be yourself at that moment in time. Don't try and be somebody else who you think the audience wants to listen to. Very good advice. Carl, you mentioned a couple of times in, in, in what you've told us already about the value of communication, about working in teams. How do you think your teams see you as a leader? Yeah, it depends. I, I, I think it's interesting. There was a, you know, there's a piece of GP that um, is, is, that was taught to me when I was doing my general practice, which I always resonate with me. And it was about when you see patients, one of the most important things is, how did the person make you feel? So I think seeing people is different to feeling. And, and they said, one of the interesting issues is, when you see patients, you go, oh, they make me feel a bit anxious, that person. Generally, the, the, the consultation was to say, actually, they'll probably make lots of people feel like that. And therefore, in that sense, you can get a, a viewpoint on the person and understand what they're going in in their role. So generally what I'm doing is, I think people can see me differently at different times. 
Sometimes they can see me as assertive. Sometimes they can see me as easy, easygoing. Sometimes I'll be pressing the buttons and I'm all over it. And sometimes I'm standing back. But what I want them to do is what do they feel like? And I want them to be able to feel like this is a guy who supports me. Sometimes he'll he'll let me have a free reign. So it's like there's not contacting me. What's going on? I feel like he's, nobody's got he's got not a clue. Another time it's like, oh, getting a phone call out of the blue and they're asking you about certain things. And 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 the most important thing within the team is that people feel empowered to get on with their job. And once people feel empowered, my position is they'll really start to enjoy themselves and they'll start to take on their own leadership roles. It's interesting though, people within the team will find me differently because they'll see me differently. Some will find me a bit warmer than others. Some might find me a bit harsher than not. And I can see that. And what I'm trying to do is use my own emotional intelligence to garner where are we at any moment in time. What I don't think my job is to say, everybody has to think I'm a, um, he's just a nice, easygoing guy that you can come in and you'll get the way you want to be all the time. But I think it's that reflection emotionally. What I don't see is when we do these sort of clear 360 degree things, which are very paper driven and people seem to answer them in a sort of way that they, yeah, everything's fine. I'm often talking to people to garner and feel in that situation, what did that go like? So everybody's, and that's really interesting because everybody's different in the team. Oh, that conversation I've just had with my manager, I can, I can sense they felt stressed about it. And I can feel the stress, but it's okay because I know I'm pushing the boundaries. Over here, I'm having a difficult conversation with somebody because actually I'm putting the work back on them and saying, you need to come up with the plan, not me. It's not my job. Otherwise, why am I not doing your job? And that's a slightly difficult. And then sometimes it's just very fun and supportive because I'm like with this person, I'm like, they're amazing at their job. They just need to keep being supported. And, and, and across that range, it's about how do you feel at all these times? But what I do do a lot of is with some of the people at some of the key times, I'm touching base a lot just to connect in and go, if we've got this certain project that's on the priority list, I'm touching base to say, right, let's get communication going. What we need to do is be speaking every month, maybe every two weeks as a smaller group. And what we're doing is we're not using the meetings in effect, we're using them to keep the comms going. Whereas what I see in teams that are dysfunctional, they don't speak and then they come to a meeting and they're making decisions without everybody having discussed them. So I think I wouldn't worry so much about how people see you, but more so how does it make them feel and you feel in them interactions. And I the best thing for me is when I just think, oh, that person feels supported and they're getting on with their job. I might not know what they're doing, but I know they feel supported and they're happy. And, and if something goes wrong, my job is to go, do you know what? I'm taking the responsibility in effect. That's OK. If we make some mistakes, that's what we want to do here. And it's interesting how this world right now makes it very difficult for people to make mistakes in a way that it was easier beyond because you're going to get called out in so many ways through social media and the, the wider accountability in a very administrative environment. I suspect where there is a bit of a culture that doesn't want people to make mistakes at the moment. Now, I'm not talking about 
uh, I'm talking about mistakes where you try and do something and it might lose some money. You put a teaching scenario module out there and you run it and it loses money. And I go, that's okay. What was the evaluation like? The evaluation was great. All right, now let's fix fix the audience. How do we fix that? We've got one bit. Let's do two bits. Let's keep fixing it. And if, if you go across an administrator or finance, they'll go, well, we can't run anything that loses money. And I go, mm. we can. We can because we've got to innovate. So you'll find many things that push up against you. But I think that emotional intelligence is, is a fundamental principle of what we do in terms of going forward. How does it make you feel? Yeah, no, that's that's clearly coming through what you're saying. And and part of emotional intelligence will be self-awareness. Mm. So I'm interested, so you as a leader in evidence-based healthcare, there must have been times when you felt really challenged and you know, yeah. and you've got that self-awareness. So can you give us any insight into some of those times and, and why you felt challenged? Yeah, I suspect I actually quite like going into the challenging environment. You know, when we first started the centre, it was 2010 as I came in director. So the first challenge was we had no business plan, no funding. And actually it was just uh, me and the centre manager, Ruth Davis at the time, who just started in place of somebody who'd been in post for 20 years. And in effect... That was a point where I went, wow, and we've got to deliver all this teaching and we've got a master's program that's failing. And in there, there's loads of processes of, I've got to achieve all of these things. And how do you go about that when you're feeling really anxious and actually you don't quite have all the skills to achieve it? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing you have to accept. You haven't got all the bits of the jigsaw. And that's the second bit. If you look at the planets, the second bit then is not to is to go, actually, who's around me who can help? Actually, there's this bright guy called Kamal Mutani around who's actually in a, in a GPACF at the moment. Maybe I go and talk to him and say, look, we've got bits of the architecture. I need some help. And all the time going out and going, look, let's get a bit of a network of people because actually there's loads to, to go, go here. And actually, I'm not going to be able to do all of this. There are bits of the job that people are far better at me than I am. So that's the first bit. But what happens is, um, within these situations, is you start to feel uncomfortable. And one of the key things is, it can start to pervade lots of your bits of your life in that. You start, your heart rate goes up. You feel a bit stressed. You're not sleeping quite as well. And in that, you suddenly start to realize the most important thing is you've got to look after yourself, number one. And this seems to, to when you tell people this, it's selfish. Well, I go, look, if you're not healthy and fit, how can you then look after other people and take forward a plan? And that was one of the key findings for me was actually at that point was to say, right, you've got to start looking after yourself. So I started taking up cycling at that point and doing quite long cycling rides, mm. like two, three hours. And in effect, what I was doing in that point was freeing my mind tiring myself out physically, which is getting me energetic and healthy, but allowing my mind to relax enough to then think of a strategy, not rush in. Now, within that, I then as part going forward, I, I, I do this in my teaching sessions. I talk about the strategy of the tortoise and the hare, which everybody knows the story of the tortoise and the hare because it goes right back to primary school when we teach it. And you think, why was people teaching you things like uh, your times tables, all of these English rules, and they were talking to you about the tortoise and the hare? 
because actually it's a really important story for life. Because what you're doing there is saying, actually, if you're going to be successful, you're talking about a plan that is a tortoise that just keeps moving forward, forward, forward. And that's really interesting, as opposed to what I see a lot of unsuccessful people is their hairs, they're doing something. They tear around. What are you up to now? Oh, I'm interested in this. Six months later, how's it going? Oh, it didn't go quite well. I'm now on to something new. And I'm going, well, it, it, it wouldn't have worked in six months. How can you solve something that problematic in such a short period of time? Whereas the tortoise, what you do is you say, look, here's a problem. And actually, it's going to take me three to five years to start making inroads. And if you think of it that way, but what you can't do is wait till three years and start your project. That means you've got to be really urgent on day one to kickstart what's happening. So all the time now, I'm thinking now 12, 18 months, two years ahead, even five years ahead, we're setting off trains of thoughts. We're closing some things down. We're opening some things up. We're a bit urgent about there's a real need to get the meetings in now. But actually, it's a tortoise program that actually it's going to be three years before it's successful. And I think that's the bit is recognizing the impact it has in, in yourself going forward. There is a bit where I find what I find the most difficult thing. And I, and, and I think this is for us to think about our role is when you're feeling you're being micromanaged. And that makes me feel wholly uncomfortable. And that's where somebody's given you all of the responsibility, but not all of the control. And that puts everybody in an uncomfortable position. Because if you haven't got all of the control, but you've got all the responsibility, somebody at some point will bear down on you and start saying to you, mm, you're getting that wrong. You should be doing it this way. You should be thinking about it this. We'll come in and start to blame you in certain situations. Whereas, so we work really hard and I work really hard to say, you've got all the responsibility and you've got the control. You make the decision. And I think that's an important aspect where that's the thing that makes me most uncomfortable at the moment. And so if somebody wants to give me all of the responsibility now, but doesn't want to give me the control, I'm not going to sign up to the deal. I'm going to walk away until we get to a point where I go, no, if I'm the director, I have control of all of these elements because I have all the responsibility. And I think that's an important aspect. So I'll give it a, an example. They might say, you're the director, you have all the responsibility, but I'm in charge of the purse strings. You go, well, if I want to appoint somebody, you're going to say no. Well, then I've not got control of the situation. And that's an important aspect, understanding responsibility and control. And watch out, you need both of them if you're going to take forward leadership and initiative. So we've talked about uh, teamwork, we've talked about healthy selfishness, you mentioned the importance of that. And we've also talked about, you know, being able to stand up for your own vision and your beliefs. I I'm fascinated, Carl, to know a bit more about who's, has anyone influenced you, your leadership style that you look to, to sort of lend themselves to some of the traits that you've described already? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to put, you know, everybody, I'm going to put my dad in there in the first aspect and then say, look, incredibly uh, influential. He, he was a guy who read a lot. And I think you have to be well read. So, even you know, in them days, he would read a paper from front to back and for an hour every day. 
and then have some discussion or debate. So I think that's important. But second is, was incredibly relaxed about understanding that you don't go in and when you're feeling anxious or you're feeling stressed, you step back and you go, look, wait till that anxiety's passed before you jump in. That's an mm. important aspect because often in them positions, we can be rash and do things with regret. So that that's one. But let and I mean, and I worked with a lot of people, but then let's come to the healthcare scenario of where we were. Um, there's been a quite a few people that I've worked with quite throughout all of the healthcare scenario where they've been thoughtful, interesting, and helped me think about the strategy. And each one of them, you can see, I've, I've looked at and took bits out of them. So, you know, I had a great, uh, great uh, pleasure to work with Dave Sackett, who I met as a medical student. Mm. Uh, passionate, uh, forceful, assertive, knew what he wanted to achieve, but also was a great mentor to students and people who'd come along, he would always say so. If somebody comes in that room with an idea, they, they are coming in interested and engaged. And your job is to shape that idea. But if they come out of that room with their idea crushed, you failed. Mm -hmm. And you go, yeah, and I see people, I went to see such a body, I had my idea. And he just said it was a waste of time. And I go, never do that. Let them go out the room. You might change it. You might say, I wouldn't, wouldn't do it that way, but I think about it this. Think about that. Let them go out. So loads of caveats about little bits of how to go about your daily job, whether it was in have a writing day, make sure you're communicating, putting your ideas out every week. That was another thought process. Uh, so there's that. And then loads of really impressive people throughout my time in Oxford, whether it's people like Paul Glazew, Doug Altman, uh, all of them people incredibly useful to work with. But I'm gonna say actually, of all the people I work with is there are two bits. I love working with students. Mm. That's been incredibly interesting because in any project, if you work with a student, they're always gonna say at least one thing where you go, my God, there's a light bulb just gone off. What an amazing thing to think about. And they just often don't know. And that's our jobs is as academics and at professor level, you go, wow, what a great idea. Mm. What I never would have thought of that. How do we now make this operationalize? So that's that. So that's been important. The second aspect, which I also think is an important aspect to teams, and I'll put this back on you, you see, is, is one of the things that really makes me sort of feel we're in the right direction is that people linger and hang about in the team. They don't come and go. So I always look at teams when they're like, oh, they turn the staff over every two or three years. I'm like, geez, man, the coffee must be pretty bad, bad, bad in their, their restroom in some way. But actually, people, so our centre manager, a decade now, same time, and I've just got off the phone with her, discussing, I'm like, okay, having a chat, she's ringing me, asking, is there anything I need to do today? Mm. And I'm like, I didn't have to ask her. Yourself has been lingering around for 15 years now. Uh, a net in the team so and then all the group of people we work with outside we're talking decades john brassy from trip tom jefferson 15 years so having that group of people where you've worked and i'm not saying group think because they're all think differently and boy are some of these people difficult in their thought processes at time you know and but that's what we want but building that and having that rapport 
And that approach means when we're bringing in new people or we're bringing in lots of students, 150 students on board, we have a team of people who are reflecting, thinking about the strategy. And I'm learning lots in that because I'm like, well, I wouldn't have thought of doing it that way. That was administered great by that person. We just had a new person join the team, administer, administered the teaching in, in the undergraduate medicine. I'm like, wow, that person's done it so much better than I would have done it. And actually, I'm like, I've just learned something. And I watched somebody do some teaching the other day, our DPhil director, and I thought, that was really cool. I really like that. So all of them bits are happening all the time. And, and what I'm saying is, is, is there are two bits, I think, happening. One is you're watching people who are your mentors or people you work for, and you're thinking, I like that bit. I don't mm. like that bit. And I'm going to mm. steal that. And we talk about that in teaching, don't we? We say, look, good teachers collect material and if it works use it and that's what we do I like, I like that teaching bit I'm going to steal it I'm going to use it so there's that so and I think they're in a group of people who give you little bits of x but you as a person have to create an environment where you have relationships with people who are good bloody good at what you do mm. and I often think of it in terms of Steve Jobs's book because he talks about it A team and B team players and that's a bit dichotomous because I think everybody's on a journey but generally if you're going to be working with people who are really good at what they do then you should hang on to them and hang on to their coattails because what they're saying is you're a good person to work with too and that that A-team dynamic is what creates productivity and effective outcomes. And therefore, what you're looking all the time is for that fit where you go, actually, if I work with this person, look at what happens. And sometimes it can become dynamic in a way that you never foresaw. So, for instance, in this outbreak, in the COVID outbreak, uh, Tom Jefferson, who I've known for a long time, we worked together and, and you worked on the reviews when we did the Tamiflu reviews. And that took from 2009 to 2014, five years to do, publish a couple of systematic review papers. But boy, were they influential in what they did. It took us two and a half years to get the data. And then we had a transition where we didn't work together for quite some time, but stayed in touch, little bits here, off doing that and that. And then within this current outbreak of the COVID, we've talked, I've talked to him daily about the issues. And in that, we started to have a productivity of, here's what we're thinking, let's disseminate our thinking. We're uncertain about this intervention, let's write it up and communicate it. So it brings that dynamism together, which you can't do if you suddenly said, I'm gonna work with somebody because there's something really important and let's start working together now. Having them relationships pre-existing that you've been building means when something really important comes along, you've got an opportunity to respond in a high quality 18 way. And I think that's important. And, and in that you'll learn a lot. If that person is, you're listening going, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. I would have looked at it differently. Now, I think this is interesting again, because there's often a bit inside of you and people will recognize this where we go, I want all the glory. It should be all me. Now, and that's something that jumps out of all of us. It's the, the inner self, if it ways. It's all the bad bit of us that goes, you know. And whereas when that happens to me, as I check it and go, but hold on a minute, my product will come down a notch. In my seeking my, my own self, actually promoting what I want to achieve for myself, 
the product will get worse. Therefore, what I'm always thinking about is the output, the end game. What is it we're hoping to achieve here? What will be the best output? Now, if the best output is just me, then I wouldn't have joined forces with somebody in the first place. And so I'm always thinking of what are we trying to achieve here as a really high quality product? And to do that, I often find I can't do that on myself, on my own. I'd probably do it for a nice little talk, 40 minute talk. But if I'm trying to write something really important or articulate or put an idea out, I'm thinking, actually, I need somebody else than me because it'll be a better idea and let that be the important output. And then it'll come back to us and say, oh, well, by the way, it was wrote by us. So I'm just going to pick you up on that, Carl, because that's very interesting. So would you say then, I'm just thinking about future, you know, EBM, EBHC, healthcare leaders. I think what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is the value of that peer-to-peer -peer support. You know, you mentioned some of the people you've worked with. Are you saying then no matter, you know, what position you are in your career, professor of EBM, you still value that sort of peer-to-peer -peer support and the opportunity to bounce ideas off people? I'm saying it's actually more important than what we more think. Important. More important than the little bit. The, the bits we see from other people outside of us are the little bits where we go, I like that trait. I like the way somebody does that. I'll take that. I'll try and use it. I'll work it into my own. But I'll give you the best example I can of this peer-to-peer -peer support. One of my good friends and colleagues is Professor Rafael Pereira. He's Professor of Statistics in the Department of Primary Care. Um, I think we are coming up to around about, I think we're in the 90s of joint papers together. And that goes back now, I think about 17 years in a production plane, where he was a junior statistician when I was starting as an academic clinical fellow. And I just thought, wow, this guy knows so much more about stats than I know. I need to hang around with this guy and learn a lot of things about statistics. And in doing that, I used to go in and go, look, I'm not quite sure about this. We'd have a conversation for it. I go, well, let's go down to the pub and continue this conversation. I'm not, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't say sometimes come to the pub with us because if you don't like EBM, you don't like epidemiology and stats, you're going to be very bored because we will sit in the pub for three or four hours having a drink, talking about ideas or trying to understand particular issues. And I was only doing that a week ago. So 17 years in, I'm still doing the same where I'm going, what about this issue? Have you what about this? I'm struggling with this in, in funding of X or I'm thinking about this summer school. What do you think? And all of that input is has been fantastic for 17 years. I'm hoping he would say, I've gone on to be head of one of a really large stats department. It would it's been similar. But I think that is more important than trying to say somehow there's somebody out there who's going to get me to that leadership. And I think it's having people with skill sets as well, where you think they're important and you want to know more about it. So it's incredibly important to me in epidemiology and EBM that I understand the quantitative aspects of what we do. And in doing that, I'm working with a couple of guys now who are similarly coming along and I'm like, wow, this is great. These guys are even bringing a new level of thinking to my knowledge. And we've been working together a couple of years. If I'm still working in 15 years, it'll be all around an impressive effect. And I think that stability in what you do is incredibly important to your success as a leader. Thank you for listening to part one of our Exploring the Fundamentals of Leadership with Professor Carl Hennigan. 
You'll be able to find part two on the Evidence-Based Healthcare podcast series.